For those of you who have lost money, like millions overnight. For those of you who are or have been in personal debt. For those of you who have been at rock bottom, ready to give up. Get ready because it's gonna get a whole lot worse. And that's a great thing. This is Below Zero to Hero, a brain dump by The Fail Coach, helping entrepreneurs develop a healthy relationship with failure. Look, failure can't be feared. It's the number one killer of creativity, ideas, dreams, and even entrepreneurs themselves. And it's thought will never get in your way again. With the right mindset, failure can be step one into a new journey of being a better leader, having better balance, better relationships, and most importantly, success. So bring it on. This is Below Zero to Hero with The Fail Coach. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another Brain Dumb by The Fail Coach episode. We are doing another interview. I have my dear, dear friend Quinn today with me uh, for this episode. Um, Quinn, I would like to first welcome you to the show welcome you to the podcast and uh could you just quickly introduce yourself to the audience please yes mia thank you so much for having me it's uh i mean we talk often but it's always a pleasure to uh to be here with you yeah we talk often but then we always kind of say oh this could be valuable to so many people and we don't record it so it's a good thing that this time we're doing a recording of it um would you mind telling the audience a little bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. So I, um, I'm an online entrepreneur. Uh, I could say that I, it's my addiction. It's my business and the same addiction because I love everything related to business. Uh, my main thing is e-commerce. I've been selling online since 1997. Well, and, uh, a lot of people didn't even have computers yet. Uh, and uh, and I still do it today because it was it happened it happened by fluke when I started in 1997. It was just the fact that I had a computer and I had a need to make a little bit of extra cash, so I found that way. And and then because I I liked it and I figured it was easier than than having a you know a physical job like living in Europe. Uh, th that's what it was back then. Any any job that I could get would be at a factory and, and it would be like physical work. And uh, so that, that was, I turned it into a passion. I always loved it and turned my business into business, into my passion, my passion into my business. And I do that today now at, at a different scale, of course, but it's been, I believe 21 years uh, to get here. So it's all related to creating physical products, and selling physical products online, uh, eBay, Shopify, uh, any kind of Word, WordPress, any kind of websites. Uh, but I, I leverage other people's platforms like I did for many years with eBay. I don't use eBay anymore. But now Amazon, FBA, my own Shopify sites. And, uh, and that's it. I create products and I sell products. And I also manage with an agency, a commerce agency that I have, I manage uh, online accounts for other businesses as well. Mm, nice. Um, when you say creating product, what do you mean by that? How do you create products? So creating products is, um, the products are private label. So I'll, I'll explain what that is. Private label is when we grab a product that already exists. So I'm not going to invent a product. I'm not going to make something that didn't exist before. I grab an existing product and I find a manufacturer of that product. Let's say right now I'm talking to you and I have uh, this microphone in front of me. If I wanted to create a microphone brand, I would find the manufacturer of microphones. I would ask them to private label this microphone, meaning they are going to make their the microphone with the quality that they already know how to, how to, how to build them. And I don't, they're going to build it and they're not going to brand it with their brand. They're going to put my brand on it. And automatically I become the owner of a microphone brand and I will be the only person that has this brand for sale. So I can do the marketing for my microphone brand 
And I mean, for the record, I do not have a microphone brand, but almost anything else you can think of, I've, I've been into it and I, I've launched many other products and I put a brand on them and then I often change them. So for example, I can go to Amazon and if I see similar microphones to mine, I download whatever reviews they have and I can see that a product that has, let's say it has 10,000 reviews. I download all the negative reviews, one, two, and sometimes three stars. And then I see what is the most common thing that happens. Why do people hate the microphone? Uh, was it because of the packaging? Was it because uh, if it was something to do, if they left a bad review because shipping was late, I can't do anything. But if it's okay, the wire on the back keeps breaking. It always breaks. What I do is I contact the manufacturer. I ask them to change mine. So I make it more unique by, by changing the wire that breaks or changing the packaging. I, I always change the packaging. I try to make my packaging very appealing and also shelf ready because I sell on walmart.com. What do you, what do you mean appealing and shelf ready? So this is um, because online is where I sell uh, most of the times, but there's always the potential for any brand to become known, become a real brand. And then when, when brands have, uh, when they do have their own followers, people start requesting this on shelves of, uh, you know, like a Target or a Walmart, or, and they want to see this at the local, let's say the local music store wants to buy my microphones. I need to have them shelf ready with a package that's going to have a barcode that's going to have anything that it needs to by law to have to be on a shelf and also to be appealing. And let's say if I have it at Walmart and I know that it takes, it's a three second from the person walking down the aisle. If they are not there with the intention of buying my microphone, I only have three seconds to capture their, their eye, right? If people are there on purpose looking for something, they, they will, they won't rest until they find it, but I want to be able to stand out and capture the random clients on a shelf. And so the main, when we launch something, the main target is a, the online world. It's going to be, let's say walmart.com and amazon.com and in, in the Shopify site, but there's always, uh, I always want to have the product prepared in case Walmart tells me, hey, instead of having walmart.com, uh, can we put, um, you know, a thousand of these units on the shelf to test, right? If it's ready, I'll just say yes, and they'll already have my stock at the, at the warehouse, and we're good to go. But doesn't that make it more costly for you to prepare every product to be shelf-ready? Wouldn't, would it make, uh, would it be also the same if when that need arises to change that then, or is that not possible? It, it is possible and it is slightly more costly, but it, it's not a big deal because um, the packaging, my, the, my product is going to come in a package anyway. It's just going to come with uh, the default that, that manufacturer is going to give me, right? Because if we stay on the, on the example of the microphone, they're not going to ship me a microphone and the wires just in a plastic bag. It's going to come some in, in a cardboard box. <clears throat> Sorry. It's going to come in a cardboard box. Probably it's going to have some sort of foam around the microphone and it's just going to be white with nothing, nothing else. Right. Cause that's what some people call it actually white label. What I do is I get my designers to put something uh, visually appealing on it. Sometimes it's the colors. Uh, sometimes it's a, a smiley face, depending on what the product is and make that uh, stand out and make it more beautiful. And it could cost me a little bit more, but in the long run, when I give this design to that manufacturer, for them, it's almost the same printing a white box with a barcode on the back or printing one with a, a few different colors. It can cost, for example, 
uh, in the long run, depending on how many units, but it could cost 20, 30 cents more. And let's say if, if it's, um, let's say if it's a hundred dollar microphone, those 40 cents are not going to make a big difference at the end of the day, because you know, like Apple does, we were talking off the air, we're talking about Apple and how much you love it. And, and everybody does, because they're, of course, a huge company and they know what they're doing. Their packaging, there's a lot of money and effort put into that packaging for that reason, because it's an ex experience. And another thing that I do too, Mia, is when I have a product that has a package that is gives gives my, let's say my microphone, uh, makes it feel better. Not that the quality is bad or not, but sometimes the packaging can make it, uh, make it feel like it's superior. I also, okay. I also use that uh, for influencers. Let's say I find an influencer inside this niche on YouTube or Instagram, and I can tell them, hey, listen, I noticed that you're sticking with a microphone. That would be a good example. I noticed that you, your microphone is not such high quality. Uh, what if I sent you one of my microphones for free? If you love it, would you, you know, talk about it or or maybe just let it hang and and when pe when you're talking to when you're making a video let people see the brand and depending on the size of the influencer uh you know if we're talking about 100k followers they'll love to have a microphone for free if we're talking about a million followers they want the microphone and a few you know an extra an extra pay but which is fine because those videos will stay there sometimes for years. And uh, if I have that brand for years, um, their unboxing, showing the package and how they receive it is going to get me more customers. And, okay. and like I said, it could be 40 cents. I have one that's really good. That was an extra 60 cents. Well, and it's a $40 product, but it's uh, the margins are there, Mia, right? Uh, Let's say the my forty dollar product uh, totally total cost for me landed are six six US dollars. Okay. Okay. How how do you like there's so many questions I wanna ask you. Like um how do you start finding you know what your next product will be? Oh that's a great one. That is the number one because when I started, the thing that I was doing was I would find products that I like, things that I was the customer for, right? So if I liked fishing, I would like to be selling fishing rods and, and fishing gear and all that stuff. So I was, I was creating things for me. And that's a big mistake because, for example, fishing niche is a good one because, you know, there's many, many people uh, that love it. It's a huge niche. But Sometimes if you're, you could be into something that the majority of the population isn't and you love it so much that you think is a good idea, but the reality is it's not. So what, what we do now is we find the demand first. We don't, we don't have a product and then go try to create that demand. We find a demand uh, with, with tools that we have, softwares and stuff, we can go through for example, Amazon is the biggest, the biggest player. So we can go to amazon.com and see what are people searching for, what is selling and where the demand is. We also follow trends, Google trends, Amazon trends, and see what are things that are climbing and growing. Uh, the demand has been always growing and, and not, um, not flat. And then we can, compare the demand with the competition because normally when there's a big demand on anything there's a huge competition behind that demand <laughs> yeah sure and if in, in some of the cases your competitors could be uh, somebody that has been in that market for 10 years and they have built brands and they have a lot of cash flow power to remove you as a new seller it's, it's easy to remove new sellers. That's kind of unfortunate. But if somebody launches a brand new brand on, on an, anywhere online, but mostly let's say Amazon, 
they're very dependent on algorithms, right? It's not, it's more right now, it's still more algorithms than human behavior. So if I launch, launch a brand of these microphones and let's imagine my microphone is the best in the world. Okay. If you can imagine that I have the best one in the world and it, let's say it costs me $50 for me, uh, my own cost to get this microphone, but I want to sell it for 50 just to do a launch at break even so I can, you know, get a lot of customers. People, human behavior is that they they want social proof. So they want to go to Amazon and see that the microphone that has 10,000 five-star reviews is the one that everybody is buying. And this one that I just launched has no reviews. People, there's no proof that it is the best in the world yet. So my conversion rate when it comes to uh, launching a new product with low reviews is going to be a lot lower because there's no social proof. Now, what I, what I say that algorithms have a huge impact is right now, uh, Amazon works by the one that sells the most, the fastest, and is the most relevant to somebody's search, right? So if I go on, on Amazon and I type Bluetooth speaker, you want to see a Bluetooth speaker. You don't want to see my microphone. So of course, I'm not going to be relevant to those kind of keywords. So Amazon's algorithms are going to favor relevancy, sales, velocity, and quantity of sales. And of course, the conversion rate to that keyword. And when I launch, I don't have any of that, right? So that's, that's the unfortunate part when your competitors that have been on the, on that market for a long time, they know this and by there's ways, for example, where you can increase your, your pay-per-click bids. So your brand that is launching, even though you're going to lose money for a bit, the brand that is launching cannot compete with that. And there's no way that they can compete with a $10 bid for the keyword microphone. So, I mean, those are negatives and positives because uh, you can be kicked out of a, a niche from your competitors if they know exactly what they're doing. But at the same time, if you know what is possible, you can know how you, you can't prevent it. So, I, I mean, we were talking about um, the competition versus the, um, the demand. So that's why it's very important to see the competition. It's um, sometimes you can see that there's room for one more because the demand is there. We also need to know that, can you compete? Can you take some of that demand? Right. It's not just, you can't just pray that, Oh, if I get 1% of their sales, I'll be, I'll be laughing. But I mean, that's just a guess. We can't guess that, uh, you know, that in business is not a, if, yeah. if I do this, no, there's no ifs you, you have to be certain. So but how I mean, do you then, how do you then start? You think now that almost like, not almost, but like everything is already covered in on, on Amazon. There is like supply for literally anything you can think of. And so if you're not innovating new products, so basically you're just competing amongst others who are selling same or similar products. Now, how do you start if you're completely new? Or how do you start when you're launching a brand new uh, brand like you're starting from zero that's that's true uh, there is almost anything almost anything you can think of has been created and is out there uh, so it's very hard to find you have to find a unique uh, something unique about your product even though they're going to look the same uh, all microphones can look the same and they all have the same function they record sound right but of course, there's some microphones out there that, that can cost you $2,000. And then there's microphones that can cost 20. And now some of them are perceived value. Others are actually unique features that they have when it comes to, I'm talking about microphones as an example, but anything is the same. You've got to find something unique that you have and your competitors don't or that the majority of don't, uh, them don't have. Quinn, Quinn, I mean, okay, I get it. I mean, if I'm manufacturer, let's say I start a startup 
because, um, and let's say I'm not an innovator, but I see huge mm. demand within the microphone space uh, for specifically for podcasts. And I create a whole new product that is, I don't know, in, in, in a few different ways, super special. Uh, and it's aimed specifically at podcasts. Of course, if I'm the manufacturer, if I'm controlling the manufacturing process, then of course I can do these tweaks and, and, and differentiate myself from, from others. But aren't you all just basically buying from this Chinese wholesale uh, production manufacturing companies where you, you, you can't really create a unique product because they're just pumping out a ton of the same stuff. And you, I mean, how does that go? Like, that's how I understand the whole thing. That's a great point. I'm glad you, you brought that up because people that are outside of private label may, uh, may think like that. And in some, in some situations, it's actually true. That's when people are not building brands. They're just buying, uh, like you use the term wholesalers. They, they just buy whatever's already done. Whatever, if there's a, a factory producing 10,000 microphones a day uh, without, a, without brand or anything on it, or they have sometimes their own brand, the manufacturing brand, if you're buying those and just selling them without changing, I, I, I wouldn't call that private label, right? That's just being a, a reseller or a wholesaler. Uh, in private label, we actually do change things. So if I contact a factory, and they say they will do private label for me. And I will, there's a few things that I ask. And one is, if I want to do changes, can you do those changes for me? Uh, if they say okay. no, okay. if they say no, they, they're out. They're, they're not a vendor for me. Because I need to, I mean, if you look at a coffee mug, uh, the reviews of a coffee mug from a competitor, and you're going to launch one, and they say, Oh, I, I love this mug. This is really good, but uh, I would prefer if it had a handle. So uh, I would contact the, the manufacturer and I say, I'll say, Hey, I want the exact same mugs, uh, but I want mine to have a handle and okay. they can do that. They can add, okay. uh, most manufacturers will do that for you. Okay. Okay. Now we are going into the next level of stuff, but then, I mean, as far as, again, as far as my knowledge goes in, in this area, um, you need to pre-order and pay a big order that's usually at least one standard container size um, or even more or, or make a commitment that you will buy so and so many pieces in the next 12 months or six months or whatever for them to actually go and change their manufacturing process just for you? Uh, not, not necessarily. Uh, the situation that that applies to, uh, that's for licensing. So if you want to, let's say if I wanted to make a, a backpack with um, Shrek on it, I would have to contact Disney and request like a licensing deals. And in that case, they will tell me what the minimum orders will be for for a 12 month period. And if you don't, if you don't reach those 12 month sales, you still have to pay them the royalty that they, they requested. But when it comes to private label, the manufacturers will tell you uh, they have an MOQ, which is minimum order quantity of, they could say a thousand units. They can say a hundred units, depending depending on the product, the MOQ changes. Now, well, yeah, I get, I mean, I get it. If, if you're, like what you said, like I have a mug and I want to add the handle. And if that's not a complicated part of the manufacturing process, mm -hmm. then of course they will accommodate you. But I mean, when it comes to a bit more complicated stuff, you probably need to order quite a lot for the factory to consider changing stuff. You know, I'm, I'm talking like, you know, you, you started with microphones. That's a more techy thing. And I mean, I'm not saying if you want to change the color of the microphone, which is probably very simple to do, but if you really want to change something techy on it that has uh, a more deep 
change in the whole manufacturing process, then they would probably say, oh, but you need to buy, I don't know, 100,000 units for us to, you know, change the whole half of our manufacturing process just for you. Oh, I get, I get it. I get what you're saying. When it comes to uh, physical changes that, are, that do not involve the technology, for example, I, when it comes to the microphone itself, I, I couldn't tell the microphone manufacturer how to, what better technology to use that because they know more than me when it comes to that. But the physical aspects of the microphone, let's say if I wanted uh, my microphone to be um, sturdier or the cable to be stronger or even to have a handle, I can do that. Uh, by, but sometimes you would have to pay your own mold. So if the factory is going to change things, of course, they don't want the cost of it. And it becomes sometimes uh, something good. Sometimes it could cause you issues. But for example, they can ask you for an extra 1200 bucks for a mold. And um, no, no, I get it. I get it. Yeah. I mean, it, it depends how complicated the change that you want to do and is it more like a cosmetic change that will not influence the the whole pricing and the manufacturing process too much and the bigger the change that you want to do uh the 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 more time consuming and the more costly um that will be and the more of an investment that is for you as somebody who's creating a brand yeah although it's never too much mia uh, I've had a product where the changes that I requested were all done for free. Uh, so it was a size request. There was a, one of my products, it was 18 point something inches and anything above 18 inches becomes an oversized item. So there's extra shipping and extra fees when, if you sell on Amazon. So I asked them to make it 17 point something just below the 18. And then that ended up saving me four dollars per unit and the manufacturer did it for free so this was just a change in size and they did it absolutely free but it saved me four dollars per unit and after a few thousand units that that's a lot of money no no right. yeah i understand i understand um now let's go so the first part is you figure out like where demand is what are some niches maybe niches that are underserved so there is still space for a new brand to enter then you start figuring out uh where to find the product now how do you do like you know i mean um in the old days before alibaba aliexpress and so on you know you found uh, a manufacturer uh, usually, if you're in Europe, you try to find somebody in Europe, maybe you go to some cheaper countries, um, you actually sit in your car, you go visit them, you look at the manufacturing process and, and, and all of that. But in the last few years, everything moved and changed to AliEx, Baba AliExpress, mm -hmm. to China, and so on. Like how... Like, you know, like that's a completely different culture, um, different way of doing business. I actually had a guy from Canada uh, a few months ago. Uh, we did a LinkedIn Live together and he was leading, um, what's that brand? Luxotica, I think it's called. Uh, they own almost like half of all the brands of sunglasses. Uh, like Ray-Ban and so on. And he was a CEO for expansion into the Chinese market. And we were really talking like, I think like 15 minutes on, you know, like how different Chinese market is, how you approach it, how you deal with them. So how can you, Quinn, uh, based in, in, in Canada, do the proper due diligence, who to work with, who to find. I mean, I went to AliExpress or Alibaba, I don't know which, a few times, just, you know, browsing, searching for a few things. And I mean, you get literally thousands of results for whatever the hell you type in. Yes, yes. So it, it could be a sea of products in there. 
And then there's a lot of them that are not the manufacturers. A lot of them are trading companies that are going to the manufacturer themselves and they're going to increase the price a bit. And then they're going to try to sell it to somebody in North America that is unaware of the fact. And that, that could also be a positive because these, these trading companies, they, they are experienced in dealing with companies in North America. So for somebody starting out, sometimes people are afraid because like, how am I, if I buy something in China, how am I going to bring it into the U.S. or to Canada? How am I going to import that? So if you're dealing with a trading company, they already know all or most of the answers to whatever questions you have. So that could be a positive thing. But for example, Alibaba is the most known sourcing platform out there. And on Alibaba, there's ways to, to do it safely. So Alibaba has a way for you to pay the suppliers and it's Alipay. They will hold your money in escrow until, uh, I mean, until the, the product is um, manufactured and shipped, depending on what your terms are. And earlier you were saying that you do have to pay a lot of things up front. So we have um, 30 and 70 are the normal terms when you order something with a, a manufacturer in China. You've got to pay 30% at the time of the order so they know that you, you know, you're actually going to go ahead with it. And because I don't have uh, feet on the ground in China, we hire third-party companies that are inspection companies. So uh, for one, I start by filtering them on Alibaba. I see companies that have been on Alibaba for at least 10 years. Uh, and you, you, you can turn on filters on Alibaba to see number of volume of yearly sales. You know, say a company that's doing 10 million a year of sales through Alibaba, you know that they have to be uh, a legit company, right? Nobody just does overnight 10 million in sales. Or the, if they've been in business for three, five, 10 years, you know, they're legit in there's another option that Alibaba has that they actually send somebody to where this uh, manufacturer says their manufacturing facilities are. And Alibaba can verify that they are actually a manufacturer, a manufacturer at that location. So after we see that they're verified by Alibaba and they're actually a legit manufacturer, uh, I mean, then we want samples. We get order samples before anything. So I can say, send me one, two, three, or, or even 10 units of something. Uh, and they ship it over. And normally the samples come by plane. Uh, you pay for that uh, extra shipping so you can have it quickly. We test the products, see the quality. Most of the times the manufacturer, if you ask for samples, they're going to give you the best they can make to try to impress you. But we compare, of course, price is important. It's not, it can't be number one, uh, but it's very important. Quality is very important. And we compare different, for the same microphone, I would, I would talk to, let's say, at least five to 10 different manufacturers, uh, see who, who can understand me the best. Sometimes you can have somebody that is not very good at speaking or understanding English. And a lot of things can be lost in communication, so that's very important. Uh, then of course, like I said, we negotiate price uh, per quantity. Uh, if they say, okay, um, for 500 microphones, uh, they're gonna cost you $2.20. But if you order 10,000 microphones, uh, they're gonna cost you a buck each, right? You, you have to see what the risk is of ordering 10,000 or versus 500 or 5,000 and the price. And, and before anything ships, you pay the 30% and then you send in an inspection company. Inspection companies, uh, I mean, they don't cost too much, 150, 200 bucks. You send an inspection company to the factory and they're going to open one in every so many units. They're going to open them open the package, check the unit, check the quality, and they'll give me a 25 page report before I even pay the last 70%.
So when I'm happy with the quality, then I'll pay the last 70%. They'll put it into the C-can or plane, depending on the size of the products and the weight. Uh, they'll put it in the C-can, ship it over. And I'm in Canada, but I can ship directly to the USA. And then it goes to Amazon's warehouses and Amazon will, uh, you know, uh, store it. They'll put it in their warehouses and they will do the shipping for me as well. And of course they take a commission from each sale. No, okay, okay, okay. Um, so Quinn, from the moment when you have the, you know, the moment when you say, hmm, I'll start a new brand. And so, you know, the moment you dive into the research and then you go from the research to finding a manufacturer, through all of this, what you said, before you actually start with any sales, how much time would normally pass? Amia, depending on the niche and the product, it could be a month. It could be, I mean, it could be two, three weeks before. You mean from the point I see it until the launch itself? No, 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 no. I mean, you know, like, let's say right now, I, Miha, say, hmm. I want to become an e-commerce person. And so, you know, today I make a decision. I start with the research. Once I do the research, I start figuring out suppliers, doing the testing, um, the manufacturing process, everything. Mm -hmm. Until, so from the decision, I want to become an e-commerce person all the way to when I start the sales like how much time usually passes for the whole preparation process? Okay, so it could be a couple months if it's private label, right? So you can get your samples within a week and, and, you, and then you're going to go from there. But from, from the point of finding the demand and going through vendors and testing everything, it could be a month, two months um, of... Of preparation analysis and and another thing that's very important too is because uh, you're not going to launch every product even though on day one they passed all my tests and I saw that the demand was there the competition was gone was lacking and I can fit in there and I can get many sales two months from now or even a month from now before I pull the final trigger I do the analysis again because the market changes really quickly. And if I'm looking at this microphone right now and there's a huge demand for it, there could be, I mean, there could be 2000 other sellers out there looking at the exact same microphone right now. So a month from now, uh, I do the, I do the tests again and I can see that now there's uh, 50 more new competitors or 50 new brands that just launched microphones like this. And that may turn me away from it because that means that uh, they could have saw it before I did. And they could, uh, you know, they could have a, a month of time uh, in front of me that they, they've been sourcing this and, and doing their research. And no, no, I get it. And I mean, when do you start the campaign, uh, the whole, because, you know, if, if you ship with containers, that takes what, three, four, five weeks just for, the goods yes. to go from and in that month so much can change because like you said you don't know how many might be in front of you and while you're change, waiting for the ship to arrive in that time 50 new sellers can pop up yeah well if you if you have the product in a sea can on the way to the u.s you are already somewhat committed it's not a hundred percent committed but you're somewhat committed so at this point we start um, pre-launches, right? We start pre-launches that are going to be external to Amazon. We're going to do pre-launches on Facebook. Or we'll, we'll build sales funnels where we're going to create a bit of excitement around this product that is not available yet. And that's, that's the number one thing is that it's not available yet, but you can be one of the first ones. Everybody's talking about this you know, that kind of marketing around it, we start building that. And at this point, even though we noticed that there's 10 more competitors that are launching, 
because your product is 25 days away, if it's in a sea can, uh, they're new to it and we can still compete with them, right? Those uh, at the point that uh, they arrive, their product arrives and ours arrive, if we're talking about one month difference, uh, I mean, they could have 20, 30, 50 reviews and we start with nothing. It's still very easy to compete with that because they're a brand new seller. And sometimes, fortunately for, for us, not all sellers have the same experience. So sometimes it's easier uh, to get into certain niches that seemed harder, but you can see the performance of the competitors by looking at their listings. If they're not fully optimized, if they don't know how to please the algorithm, I mean, if, if the algorithm uh, doesn't know what your product is, a human set of eyes will never see it, right? Because if you can type microphone on, on anywhere, on Google or, or Amazon, if the algorithm doesn't know that you sell microphones because you have the wrong keywords or you don't know how to attract that algorithm, uh, they will never show your product. And if nobody sees it, it could be the best one in the world. Nobody will ever buy it. So, okay. No, yeah. I get it. I get it. Quinn, one question. So, you know, you've been doing this for a whole lot of time and you've been doing this on a very large scale. Um, how many products would you say do you actually end up selling from all the ideas that you have? Like how much of, you know, Oh, I'm going to check this category or this product line or this product line. Like, can you like at least give us a ballpark percent number, how many you actually follow through and actually start selling from all the ideas that you have? Oh, Mia, there's, uh, unfortunately, there's still <laughs> ideas that, that go through the filters and they seem really good and, and they still fail, right? So it doesn't matter how long you've been doing it. You, you can launch a product that is not... I mean, not, it's not really a failure, but it's, it doesn't become a success. And it still happens today with, I mean, uh, failures, uh, which we're all about there, right? You, you know all about failures. So, uh, they're not terrible things. Uh, they're actually really good things because we learn. I mean, the most I've ever learned was with products that have failed and I mean, one of the biggest lessons I learned from selling online was with one of the product failures that I ended up kind of just breaking even, even. So it was, it's not a huge, a huge deal, but it gave me some of the biggest lessons when it comes to bundling. Uh, so putting more than one product package together, but to answer your question before I go anywhere else, if I look at and if I look at a thousand products, there could be 10 that will go through the, the, the filter to like stage two to see if, um, if they meet all my requirements. There's things that I'm looking for, you know, and I award points to the product, like the size of the product will give them a certain an, a number of points. Uh, the demand of the product will give them points. The competition of the products number of reviews that a competitor has uh, will give them point, will uh, give or remove points from my product, right? If all my competitors have 10,000 reviews, I mean, I don't have a chance. Um, I don't have a chance of launching anything against them. Uh, so I, then if it's something that can be, people can subscribe to, let's say like toilet paper. I mean, if, if somebody doesn't have a subscription on Amazon for toilet paper and every month they're going to get, I don't know if it's a 12 pack or whatever uh, and, and just save money and get it automatically without having to bother ever thinking about that. And if you don't have a subscription, you should go get one right now. <laughs> but uh, I mean, products that are easily to subscribe to are of course a plus. So we measure all the points, everything, put them together out of a thousand, uh, maybe 10 will go to stage two out of stage two, only one, will come out uh, sometime, well, sometimes you can have two and it's possible to find, I I'm guessing then that's uh, what is that a 0.2% if it's two out of a thousand. Mm, yeah. And, and sometimes if you launch two, uh, one can fail, right? There's a, there's a chance uh, that you may have to, by failing, I mean, 
if you launch a product that it is getting sales, but not quick enough that your money is going to be sitting at a warehouse on Amazon instead of uh, generating another 30% um, on top of it, uh, it's better, it's better used somewhere else. So if it's taking too long to sell, not only warehousing fees are going to increase, uh, but uh, of course the money sits in the warehouse. So what we do is reduce the price, try to get as close to break even as possible. So we can use that cash flow on product B that is successful because I, I have to feed all the successful SKUs. And if it's not, uh, I never fall in love with the products anymore, Mia. I used to love the products and then I have to, you know, try to give them uh, what CPR on a product that everybody else already knows is dead, but you're so in love with it, you keep giving it CPR. Uh, I'm done with that. So it's been years now that I don't fall in love with my products. If they're not uh, profitable and selling fast, they will, they will be left behind. And how many products would you say that different products you have, you yourself have on uh, Amazon at any given moment on average, like right now, how many different products are you selling on Amazon? Well, I have different brands and then each side inside each brand, there's a certain amount of products. And then that product is subdivided, subdivided into what we call child variations. So, and those variations could be different sizes, different colors. Uh, so they all have a different skew. So uh, different products uh, on, by themselves, of not counting child variations on sizes and colors, uh, we're talking about close to 70, but skews were over 800 right now. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, can you give me an example, like maybe one or two products that are doing well now or have done well in the past and maybe you're not even selling anymore? Or maybe a brand, if you don't want to talk about a current band, brand, maybe a past brand that, you know, maybe we can recognize something that maybe I have bought and I don't even know that I bought from you. Well, one... Uh... One of the brands that used to, used to be successful was uh, something that uh, I don't sell anymore because the market was flooded. So many years ago, when I launched a, uh, it was a plantar facies, which is compression socks. So, or sleeves, they were sleeves. They're like socks, but they don't have, you know, uh, toes. They just, it's, it's just a sleeve and it's okay. a compression product. And I saw those years ago on a TV ad. And this was before I even, you know, before I was even searching for the demand with tools. And it was like, uh, I see something on TV and, I, and I'm like, okay, this is going to work. And I launched those and they were compression socks uh, for people that had plantar fasciitis. That was, that's the name of the, the issue. Okay. And from day one, they were so successful. Uh, I mean, they started selling this product, Mia. It was costing me about 60 cents per pair. All right. So at this time, they would sell for $19.99. So 60 cents, they, my cost, and they would sell for $19.99. And oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about hundreds, uh, hundreds that could sell per day. And this was because the competition wasn't there yet. Now, when people started finding them on Alibaba and other competitors that use the same tools as, as me and, you know, most sellers use the same tools and same processes. So by doing so, you ended up finding the same products and my product was found and I didn't know, I didn't know what I know now to, to try to hide it more. But when it was found, people started just making them and throwing them out there. And then the next guy launches at 18 the next guy will launch at $17 and then one will launch at 14. And because they were products that cost 60 cents and the minimum, uh, the MOQ, the minimum order quantity by manufacturers on that were, I think only 200, right? So, and because they were sleeves, 
you could get 200 socks. It didn't have to be 200 pair, right? Because one foot can need it, but the other one doesn't. Which means with 200 bucks, anybody could become my competitor. And every everybody that saw that started throwing a couple hundred bucks at it. And, and they figured that they could sell them then for five bucks and six and, and all these people that were launching products without even knowing their numbers, they weren't know, they didn't know if they were profitable because Amazon takes certain fees that are fixed dollar fees. So you can pay 15% of your sales to Amazon plus a pick and pack fee, which is the box and the shipping and all that. So it could cost you to sell that $60 item, 60 cent item. I mean, Amazon could charge you, let's say four bucks. And there was people selling them for five that, that thought they were profitable. Anyway, what happened was that uh, the demand is still there. This, there's a huge demand for this. It's a real problem, but now there's um, everybody has brands out there and most of the big sellers are done and the small sellers are getting one or two sales a day or a couple sales a week. And I mean, the space is, is done. I still have a few hundred uh, of those uh, around in, in my closet. And, <laughs> and um, unfortunately uh, they're not full socks. So it's not like I can wear them, but. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> well, you could donate them or something to, uh, I don't know, some home for, for elderly or maybe something like that. That's a good idea. The ones that were in the US, that's exactly what I did. Uh, sorry, not exactly. There's, um, there's a thing on Amazon where you, your products that are about to be charged uh, long-term storage fees and so if you have something in a warehouse longer than six months, Amazon's going to charge you an extra fee for that. And sometimes it can make it or break a product. So when it comes to that point, they allow you to donate your product to a, an institution. And by doing so, uh, I still have to pay 50 cents per unit to donate them. So I have to pay to donate my own products. And the ones in the USA I did, the ones in Canada, because I was here, I just uh, recalled them and they came over and they've been sitting there for, for a long time. Okay. So maybe I should do that. Personally walk into uh, um, old, old people's house and just give them away. Yeah. Well, now I have a question. I mean, um, I like, you know, you are the biggest e-com person I know, but I've talked with others. Um, through, throughout the last few years. And one thing that I see is a lot of secrecy. You know, like you are all, oh, I'm not talking about products and this and that. But I mean, I can find anything. I mean, I go on Amazon, I'm looking for a microphone. Um, I find microphones and then I just go to Ali, whatever. And, you know, I mean, in 10 minutes, I can find literally anything. Absolutely. Yeah. The, so the, why all that secrecy in, in the e-com business? So the issue that uh, most people in the e-com business have um, is not that the products can't be found. Anything can be found today. So the, there's two issues. One is, and they're both related to knowing that the product is yours. So everybody can know that these compression socks are a big seller and there's huge demand. But if people know that your brand is brand X, now the people that don't, uh, if, you, if you have, let's say a public following, there's always the haters and it's easy to, I mean, it's easy to hurt brands online on platforms that you don't own, uh, like, like Amazon, for example, since you don't own the platform, if somebody claims that a product is not authentic, if it is uh, a knockoff, let's say if I build a brand Quinn socks, somebody can say, oh, I bought them, but these are not Quinn socks. These are Nike. And I didn't want Nike. I wanted Quinn socks. And so that's a, a complaint of authenticity and Amazon takes them very serious. Others are uh, if somebody can get hurt with your product. So if there's any safety issues, so I, 
with claims like that, you can stop a brand from selling temporarily. And, and unfortunately, there's some sellers that uh, take competition uh, an extra level of black hat. And um, instead of doing it fair, there's competitors that can do bad things to your listings, bad reviews. Uh, they could bump up bad reviews, anything to, you know, try to stop you. For example, there was a technique used by sellers against their competitors when it comes to Black Friday, Cyber Monday, and even Prime Day. These are days where, I mean, there's a pot company, a pressure, push, uh, pressure cooker pot company in Canada that made $10 million in one day selling pressure oh, wow. cookers. Yeah, on, on Prime Day. And this was prime day of 2018 and 2019. I don't even know what they made, but that was one day. Uh, so you, because you know, the, those sale days are so big, there's always uh, people that want to take advantage of that. And there was a technique where people will, were holding all your inventory uh, as a holding as a hostage, pretty much. So, you go in with a, uh, a credit card that doesn't have funds and you place an order of your competitor's products of, let's say, 10,000 units, right? If you wanted to order, uh, say, 2,000 units or 900, 999 is normally the, the, the number you type in and you, you can place um, several orders of 999 of your competitor's products. So Amazon will basically they run out of stock and Amazon will try to run that credit card for 24 hours. And, and then if the, when it doesn't go through 24 hours later, Amazon releases that stock. But what happened was your competitor didn't get any sales during prime day. Oh, so wow. unfortunately there's a, a lot of, a lot of people with bad intentions out there. So you don't want them to know what your brand is, but you want the whole world to see your brand, you they don't you don't want people to know that you own it, uh, right? Okay. Because I get of that. It. I get it. And okay. another, I get it. the second reason is also because if somebody knows, for example, okay, Mia is very successful e-commerce seller, and Mia is selling uh, compression socks, that means he did all the research, and he has all the the means to do the proper research. So if he did it, that means the demand is there. The product is perfect to launch. So I don't even need to do research. I'm just going to copy what you launched and I'm going to launch the exact same ones. And then okay. you're creating competitors for yourself from your followers become your competitors. Right. Okay. 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 I understand. Well, Quinn, I have so many more questions <laughs> to ask you. Like, I mean, I've never done two, like I've never personally done any e-commerce. I did coach a few people who are in the e-commerce business, but not, you know, on the e-commerce side. It, it was more leadership and, and certain strategies about uh, laying foundations in their business and so on. So um, I wasn't so much attached to the whole e-com. And in the past, I was working a lot with, you know, big manufacturers and so on, but that was on a whole different scale. Like, for example, before that crash in 2009, one of my businesses was in um, renewable energy and I was buying a lot, like megawatts and megawatts of solar panels from China but that was, you know, completely different business. The yeah. way we did it back then, uh, there wasn't AliExpress or something. I mean, you would actually fly there, go to, you know, a there were like three or four really world-renowned uh, uh, producers in China. Uh, and you would go there, negotiate on the spot and so on. So it was a whole different process. And, you know, we were buying millions at a time. So it was a different different way of doing things as the e-commerce and, and, and you know, Facebook uh, sellers and so on. So um, it, it was really nice talking to you. I mean, uh, this has already been an hour. Can you believe it? Really? Wow. 
Yeah, and I just, I, I, I think like, oh, we just started chit-chatting. Yeah, like I'm like looking at the clock and it's already an hour since we started. And I think we only just, you know, started uncovering. And like I said, <laughs> I have so many questions, but, you know, obviously we won't be able to cover everything or this will, would probably be the longest podcast episode in the history of podcasting. Um, yeah. But do you... How can people learn more from you about all of this? You know, if they are thinking, I, I hope that through my questions, listeners were able to understand that uh, e-commerce is not, you know, like I, I think sometimes they feel, oh, I'm just going to go and find a watch on AliExpress for, you know, two bucks and I will make a website. I'll put it on for 80 bucks and, you know, kaboom, one click funnel funnel. And in the next two months, I will be the next uh, two comma club winner. Um, yes. Often I feel that they, they think like that. So I, I do hope that my questions kind of like shed the light a little bit. And then of course your answers that it's not that easy. It can be done, but it's a lot of work and you need to be ready to, to fail and fail a lot and, uh, and so on before you really make it. And that it, it is a journey, but for those who are ready to go on that journey, how can they get in touch with you? What can you help them with? Tell us a little bit about that. Well, uh, like you know, I have two podcasts. I host the QA Selling Online, which is a podcast about e-commerce and about selling on Amazon and selling on Walmart. And uh, that's the QA Selling Online. I also have the Fail Fast podcast, which is a, similar to yours, right? We talk about failure as being a positive thing and lessons. And the, the, main, uh, the main way to contact me would be through, through the agency, which is Prolific Zone. And that actually, the term, if it sounds familiar, it, it, it's from a story that uh, Russell Brunson tells uh, on his ClickFunnels training uh, about the Prolific Zone is the place right before um, crazy. So when some, you know, there's genius and and then there's crazy and it's just one step before and that's a prolific zone and i appreciate <laughs> russell telling that in all the stories because i own the domain and that's my agency so uh if you go to prolific zone uh all the contact forms will be directed to me eventually and or directly if you go to hi at prolificzone.com uh, you can find me or if you go to any of the the podcasts that they also have blogs with contact forms and um, you can mention that you heard me on Mia's podcast and uh, the staff will forward all emails to me. Perfect. I mean, um, I have all your links. I will include all your links in the show notes anyway. Um, I just, uh, you know, like, and do, do you also like you have the agency and you do your own uh, e-commerce business. Um, do you also, you know, have any coaching courses or anything like that? Or do you plan to have anything like that? I thought about it many times, Mia, but I mean, for the longest time, I told people on the, the QA Selling Online podcast that I wanted to give them the content for free and without ads and without any sales pitches. So I, I tried to stay away for that reason. I, I have people now because I have over 400, uh, almost 500 episodes. I have people contacting me to put ads on the show. I've turned them all down because of that. And I'm, I'm, Although I've been asked to do training for Amazon sellers in Portuguese uh, because I can speak Portuguese, uh, I mean, I, I thought about it because there isn't others, there aren't others, but I don't know. I'm kind of, I, I didn't do anything. I did not have any training and I can't, I can't do one-on-one uh, coaching at this point because of my time is very, very limited. So I wouldn't be able to. Okay. Okay. Just, you know, I want to make sure that uh, people understand what they can get from you. Uh, but I, I know you're not, not the, just the fail fast podcast, but the other one, I know that you provide a shit ton of value there. 
um, and you go very in-depth with giving information. And I think uh, that is definitely an amazing, amazing way from, for people to learn from you about the whole e-commerce business. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate it. if you guys check it out. And uh, another thing that's very important for me and for Mia, which is, uh, you know, your host is that uh, reviews are very important. So if you're listening to Mia's podcast right now, uh, remember to go leave my review there and let them know what you think is this guy's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I always forget to say that. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Um, Quinn, before I say goodbye to you, what's the last golden nugget of wisdom? And it can be related to, you know, the topic that we discussed or just in general about entrepreneurship, whatever you want. Uh, what would be that last golden nugget of wisdom that you want to leave the audience with? Mia, two of the most important things that I want everybody to know is that uh, a lot of people make e-commerce or selling on Amazon make it sound very easy. Although it is a lot easier than, sta than starting a normal uh, brick and mortar business because you don't have the costs of buying a store and having to pay rent or anything like that. It is It is easier, but there's a lot of work to be done. And another thing is everybody wants to quit their nine to five. And there's a lot of people selling courses that tell you quit your job now and start selling online. It's not that easy. So never quit too soon. The sooner you quit your nine to five job, the quicker you will be starving the business that you started online because uh, you're going to need money for, for your car, for your uh, mortgage, for food. And the sooner you start taking that money out of your online business, the sooner you start starving that business. So try to keep your nine to five as long as you can and use that nine to five to feed your side hustle, which if you're interested in doing e-commerce, um, use the, the money that you make, of course, to pay all your bills and, and do it on your side. You put in a couple hours a day, four hours a day, five hours a day, whatever you can into your business. And when you feel like you can, then you can leave your nine to five. But a lot of people abandon, leave their work too soon and, and then have to go back. Right. And then that is considered a failure. And, and if you can learn that lesson from me, because I did it a couple of times too early. Uh, if you can learn the lesson from me, use that money, stay there and grow your business because uh, the, uh, the quicker you grow, the quicker you're going to have all that freedom that you're looking for and the time to spend with your family. Perfect. Perfect. The perfect ending to an interesting episode. And I'll probably, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm just, I'll just have to bring you back again, to be honest, because really there's so many questions that, that, that I still have uh, on the whole topic. And I'm sure that uh, the audience would be interested to learn more. I mean, yes, they can go to your podcast, they can listen there, um, but I'm, I'm going to for sure bring you back and we'll do a follow-up episode uh, soon um, on this topic because it is interesting and you are shedding the light on the real story and, and not, you know, like all those gurus trying to uh, sell people on a dream, uh, but then it's not the way they are promising. It's not as easy and it's not as fast. Absolutely. And anytime you want, Mia, just let me know. <laughs> Quinn, um, all the best on your journey. Um, thank you for being my guest. Um, enjoy the rest of your day. And I really, truly appreciate you for uh, coming on my show. Thank you. Thank you, Mia.